These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We are continuing on with our series from the book of Genesis. Last week we talked about the fall a little bit, about how man turned away from God and rebelled against his will, against his commands for their lives, and brought sin into the human race and death through sin. And we're just kind of picking up where we left off in that. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, as we just heard, say, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the thing that I want to emphasize here at the beginning this morning is God said, In the day that you eat of that tree you shall surely die. And they did. Not physically, of course. If God had physically killed Adam and Eve at that moment as a result of their sin, it would have been no less than they deserved or no more than they deserved. But as we know, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He did not end their lives right there and then. He allowed them to continue physically so that there would be the possibility of redemption for them as they lived out their lives before his face. Because he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So it's by the grace of God and only by the grace of God that Adam and Eve were allowed to live long lives after that day giving birth to children, sons, and daughters who would go on to do the same. But, and I may have said this once or twice before, God always keeps his promises. He always has, and he always will. Now, we may not think of it as a promise, but it is the promise of God in verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the reason why we have to understand that that's a promise, and it's a promise that God kept, is because if God didn't keep the promises that we don't like, how could we be certain that he will keep the promises that we do? 
If he was not faithful to the word that he spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, how could we be certain that he will be faithful to the word that he speaks to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling us that if we eat from Christ, the tree of life, we will have eternal life. Now just the fact that God said it, ought to be enough. That ought to convince us that it's true. But if we want a little bit more to go on here, Romans 5 takes this even further, telling us, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. God said, in the day that you eat of it, in the day that you sin, in the day that you break my law, you will surely die. They ate from it and they died. And if we require further evidence, then listen again to some very, very familiar words from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, clearly, Paul is writing to people who have physical life. They are able to read or to hear his letters. But he's saying there is a kind of death that's more significant than just physical life and physical death. There's a kind of death that we live in when we walk in trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There are a lot of other passages to which we might turn. We're going to go to Romans 1 in a little while. But hopefully by now it's evident. When God said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die, the most important consequence was not physical death, although that was part of the deal, but in the day that Adam and Eve ate from the tree, everything changed. And one of the first things that we're going to look at, or the first thing that we're going to look at here this morning that changed, was their relationship to God. In the day that they chose to disobey God and to eat of the tree, their relationship to the author and giver of life was broken. They died spiritually that day, and they brought the entire human race along for their trouble. So then, they and we are not sick in our trespasses and sins. We're not struggling in our trespasses and sins. We have not sacrificed our self-esteem to our trespasses and sins. All of those different ways that people want to look at the lack of spiritual life that exists in people outside of Christ, we are not any of those things. As the apostle wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. There's a difference, and it's an important difference. It's important because if we were merely sick, If we were merely struggling, then there might be something that we ourselves could do to get out of this predicament. The old illustration that's so often used, you know, a man falls into a well and he breaks both of his legs and one arm. And he can't begin to climb out of the well, but somebody comes along and lowers a rope to him. 
and hopefully the one arm that's not broken is really, really strong, so that he can choose to take hold of that rope and to cling to it while he's being lifted out of the well. Well, that's all well and good, except for the man at the bottom of the well does not have two broken legs and a broken arm. He is dead. And you could stand at the top of the well and you could shout to him and you could offer him a rope. You could offer him a hand. You could put a ladder down that hole and invite him to climb it. And there's nothing that he can do because he's dead. We've seen this so often before in the story of Lazarus. How Jesus goes to the grave of his friend and they roll away the stone even though they think that he's probably going to smell not very pretty after four days in that tomb. And Jesus does something that requires a response that Lazarus cannot give. He speaks. He calls to him and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, if Lazarus is dead, he can't do that. He can't hear Jesus calling to him. He has no desire to get up and walk out of that tomb. So the miracle precedes the call. Regeneration precedes faith in the word of the gospel. And we see that here in Ephesians 2, but primarily we're focused on the idea that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, wherein they had formerly walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, naked and unashamed. Now they try to hide themselves in fear when they hear God coming around. They and their descendants now, instead of walking with God, will walk in trespasses and sins, not following God, but following the course of this world, going along with the things that we see in the culture around us, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And in case you don't know or were wondering, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, he's that same spirit who came to them in the form of the serpent, as we saw last week, and said, you will not surely die. And that has been his method of operations all along. God's not telling you the truth. He's just a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to enjoy your life. You will not surely die. There's no consequences to sin. If it feels good, go ahead and do it, and all will be well. And Paul says that when we are dead in trespasses and sins, that's who we're following. We're not following Christ. We're not following God. We are following that same spirit who deceived our first parents into original sin. And from that day on, from the day that Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and to go their own way, people would not be born basically decent and good. I want to be clear on that. People are not born basically decent and good. We don't carry the image of God like maybe a classic work of art that just has a little bit of dust on the lower ledge of the frame that needs to be blown away or swept away with some sort of a duster. David, in his psalm of confession, talks about being conceived in iniquity and brought forth in sin. So imagine that same classic work of art, not with a little bit of dust on the frame that needs to be wiped away, but nearly destroyed by heat, smoke, and water damage after a fire in a museum. This happened, actually, in 1957. Claude Monet, the 
famous Impressionist painter did a whole bunch of paintings that are known as his Water Lilies collection. And one of the largest examples of this was on display in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City when some careless workers actually flicked a cigarette butt into a pile of sawdust, which ignited, and then lit up the cans of paint and the tarps that were all in this room. And this painting by Monet was destroyed by fire. Now, there were still remnants of it, charred bits of canvas that had smoke damage and, and lots of other damage that came to it. So it still existed, but because it had been ruined by fire, it's never been displayed since. And since the fall of mankind into sin, all human beings carry the image of God, but we carry it in that way. It's been damaged by sin, nearly unrecognizable. As I mentioned last week, we're not like a brand new windshield with a teeny tiny little stone chip way down near the bottom corner on the passenger side. We're like a windshield, like that, those vehicles that were caught in that hailstorm, I think it was up by Red Deer not too long ago, where they sat in their cars and they watched baseball-sized hail just pummel their windshields until they were completely shattered and broken and leaning in. All human beings carry the image of God that is true. But sin has damaged that image. And it's damaged that image in such a way that we continue to walk in trespasses and sins unless God graciously does something about it because man's rebellion against God was not just a one and done situation. Adam and Eve didn't sin, eat the fruit of the tree, and then God comes along and he says, oops, shouldn't have done that. And they say, yeah, we, we know. Okay, well, we'll just overlook that and everything will be fine as long as you turn back to righteousness immediately. Adam and Eve chose to believe the lie of the evil one that they could be as gods. And then the Apostle Paul, or as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, claiming to be wise, that's them, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And the lust of their hearts here would be the desire of their heart to worship and serve themselves as God. To not allow any authority or power above them to say, this is the way, walk ye in it. But rather to say, no, I'm going to choose my own way. I'm going to do what seems right in my eyes. And God just gives them up to that. And that leads to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And the next verse, that's gonna, the next couple of verses are going to speak about a very specific kind of impurity. I don't want to get stuck there this week. We'll come back to it. But this is just talking about the impurity that's so rampant within our culture. If we take a look around, if you turn on the TV, if you turn on the internet, if you look at basically any print media, we're going to see that we are giving ourselves over to impurity, to the dishonoring of our bodies among ourselves, because we, like them, have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve the creature 
We worship and serve ourselves rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And this is talking about impurity. It's talking about unchastity. But we do the same thing every time that we choose to walk contrary to the will of God in order to please ourselves. We think we're so wise, but we become fools. And we seek to please ourselves, to do what feels good to us, rather than seeking to please and to worship the true and living God. Now back to Romans 1. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For the women exchanged natural relations for those which are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And I I said, there's going to be more to say about that in weeks to come. But notice how that takes their culture. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, These are people who say, well, maybe there's a God. I'm not sure. I don't believe that he's revealed himself in some way that I can be certain of that. These are people who say, well, if there is a God, he's certainly not like the God of the Bible, especially the God of the Old Testament. They refuse to acknowledge God who made all things and who revealed himself not only in the creation, but also through his word. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. Now, if we believe that this text sort of keeps funneling down into narrower and narrower channels, we might be thinking, well, what possibly could come after the things that he's already said? But look at this list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, all of this, all of this is what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. All of this is what God meant when he said, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And as I said, God promised it, And he delivered. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. So in the day that they ate from the tree, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. All of this is what sin did to humanity, to mankind, who, as it says in the Heidelberg Catechism, God created good. We know that because a couple of weeks ago we were looking at an earlier part in Genesis where God creates man and woman and he steps back and he sees them in the place that they occupy in all of creation and he says, this is all very good. God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. That's what it means 
to bear the image of God, true righteousness and holiness. And he did this so that they might truly know God, their creator, love him with all their heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. All that we've read in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter 2 and these other passages of Scripture is what happened to the human race because our first parents chose disobedience over obedience to God. And we need to know this. We need to know this about ourselves and about the human race so that we can turn to the Lord for salvation and life. The person who doesn't think they need to be saved is not looking to be saved. The person who understands that they really do is the one who is ready to hear the word of God. Even our catechism asks the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And some of you know this off by heart, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Good. There's more, but that's enough. What must you know, though, to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Well, three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. The authors of the Catechism are saying, if you want to live and die in the comfort of knowing that you belong to God, the very first thing you need to understand is that outside of Christ, you don't. That outside of Christ, there is no comfort. Outside of Christ, there is no salvation. You need to know how great your sin and misery are. And as we've seen, you were dead. That's how great they were. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's how great the sin and misery of mankind apart from Christ truly are. We want to look at the world around and we want to think, well, everybody's more or less good. But it's not true. We need to know how great our sin and misery are. The second thing that we need to know to live and die in the comfort of belonging to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, is how we are set free from all of our sins and misery. And for this, I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to read it without the intervening description of what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. There's the simple statement, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. See, this could all be pretty depressing this morning if death was the end or even the point of the story of Scripture, but it's not. Death is the antagonist we meet in the earliest chapters that enemy that always seems to be lurking around the corner, laying in wait for the next unsuspecting victim, the pestilence that stalks in darkness and the destruction that wastes at noonday, as the psalmist once wrote. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point, and that's the end of the story of Scripture. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, lost and ruined by the fall, as one hymn says. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ by grace 
you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Sin is not the end of the story. Death is not the end of the story. The story ends with life and salvation. We are delivered from our sin and misery for God, even when we were dead, set his love upon us and made us alive together with Christ. There's a third thing we must know to live and die in the comfort of belonging to God. How I am to thank God for such deliverance. Again, this is part of the reason why we need to understand what we are delivered from. To thank God, to truly worship him for our salvation, which is the number one thing that we ought to be worshiping him for, we have to understand the death from which we have been saved and we have to understand that it was so serious that by ourselves we could do literally nothing about it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one can boast. In our natural and fallen state, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are, as Paul would say later in the book of Ephesians, separated from Christ strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And it's to people in that condition that God speaks and he calls us not to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off and start all over again. Try harder, do better, are in no way expressions of the gospel. Dead men can't try harder. And they can't do better. But Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And this is our salvation. This is our hope. It's our hope for ourselves personally. And it's our hope for the future of the world. We're not looking for good people made a little better or even bad people made a little better through the progress of evolution and the efforts of technology, medicine, and government. We, according to the word of God, are looking for dead people made alive, made new through faith in the living and abiding word of God. For the one who hears the word of Christ and believes that the Father has sent him has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, I know I don't often do this, hardly ever, really, in 25 years. I've hardly ever done this. But just before we turn to the Lord in prayer this morning, I'd like you to bow your head, and I'd like you to reflect for a moment on your own life. And if you're hearing these words this morning and in your heart you're thinking amen, then I want you to remember the third point from question two in the catechism. To live and die in the joy of this comfort, you have to know how to thank God for this salvation. So how are you working that out? We sometimes sing a song that says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. 
love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And if that's true, and I believe it is, then what parts of our souls, our lives, and our all might we be holding back? Think about that. And think about how you could offer yourself body and soul in life and in death as a living sacrifice of praise to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. On the other hand, if you're hearing these words and thinking this, this kind of makes sense to me, but I'm not sure that this faith is mine, then right where you are right now, just acknowledge before God that you're not a good person in need of a little polishing up, that you are dead in trespasses and sin, and in need of a Savior who can give you life eternal and abundant. I'm not going to ask anybody to put up your hand or walk to the front or anything like that, but I encourage you just turn to the Lord and pray in your heart, Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. Trusting in Christ alone is the only way of salvation, and it's really the most important thing in all of life. As Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, whoever hears the word of Christ and believes in God the Father who sent him has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. May we pray. Father in heaven, continue to speak in our hearts through your word and spirit. Lord, we know that the fall has so poisoned human nature that apart from your grace, we cannot turn to you for the salvation that we so desperately need. But pour out your grace and pour out your spirit here this morning. Work in each one, gathered here in person or online, however we may be joining in this service, Father, all that is pleasing to you. Bring us to yourself for life and faith and hope and salvation. And then, Father, remake in us that image that was so destroyed by sin, that, God, we may live and walk in this world bearing the image of Christ and proclaiming to the world the joy of salvation through faith in him. We pray in his name. Amen.